action. Welcome to Torn Stubs with me, photographer Robert Gershenson, and Josh Winning, the greatest film critic you've never heard of. And we're going to the movies. We continue our celebration of 21st century queer cinema as we move on to 2017's Call Me By Your Name, directed by Luca Guadagnino. And we have some guests. Please welcome to the pod our friends from across the pond, Dane and Will from the Chasing Chalamet podcast. Hello, boys. Hello, hello. Hello. Hi, guys. How are things? How are things across the pond? Thank you for coming to Italy. Good, good. Yeah, we we updated our passports. We've made it across to northern... We're somewhere in northern Italy. They won't tell us exactly where we are, um, which I think is for the best. (laughs) I think it leaves a little mystery, a little fun, a little suspense. Yeah, it's very fun to be just kind of vaguely somewhere uh, in in the country that they say is shaped like a boot. I'm just just quietly... Sipping my apricot juice. Yeah, we've got plenty of that going around. Uh, it's actually apricote from the yeah. Arabic apricotu. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we are watching Call Me By Your Name. In rural Italy, in the summer of 1983, introspective 17-year-old Elio, played by Timothy Chalamet in his breakout role, has his world turned upside down by the arrival of of confident 24-year-old academic placement student Oliver, played by Army Hammer. As the two boys interact, an attraction begins to form, and soon a subtle game of will-they-won't-they emerges. Lust, love, jealousy, sexuality and heartbreak. Will they get what they desire before Olio... Olio? Will they get what they desire? You've combined them by their names. (laughs) Yeah. Combine them by their names. <laughs> Will they get what they desire before Olio has to return to America? Did it again. Will everything be peachy keen? Did I say Olio? Yeah, did it again. Oh my God, I'm half asleep. Will they get what they each desire before Oliver has to return to America? Will everything be peachy keen? Now, it's obvious why we've got you two on the pod. No, no, why? Why? I, I don't, why because I, Dane, why? Yeah, you can... were so blown away by this film... You started a podcast because of Timothy Chalamet. Were you aware of Timothy before Call Me By Your Name? I had absolutely seen Love the Coopers and the movie left my mind completely. Actually, I think I saw Love the Coopers. I don't remember. Um, I don't remember when that one came out because... (laughs) Will, that's not a core memory for you is the exact time and place that you saw Love the Coopers? I I do remember, and I also keep good track, but I, I... but I, I, so I had seen Timothy Chalamet before, but it it didn't click to me when I was seeing the the trailer for Call Me by Your Name all the time because I was this was in the swing of the height of Movie Pass, so I kept seeing this trailer and I'm like, oh, this looks gay, this looks '80s, this trailer is covered in in film noise. I'm in. I don't know what this is. I don't know anything about it. I want it. Right. Yeah, it's one of those... It's I one, want it. It's one of those situations Bring where, like, in me. hindsight, I realized I had seen him. Like, I'd seen Interstellar. Um, 
you know, I, I'd like, I, 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 I saw him on screen, but didn't clock him. I did technically see Lady Bird before I saw Call Me By Your Name, but I believe at the time I saw Lady Bird, Call Me By Your Name had debuted at Sundance. There was a lot of buzz for it. Um, so we kind of knew it was coming down the pipeline. So watching Lady Bird, I like knew he was going to also be part of the Call Me By Your Name conversation. And I want to say... Um, Oscar experts, Oscar, oh, Robert, you're like, Twisted Tongue has made its way over uh, onto my side of the mic. And I can't say Oscar experts <laughs> had kind of pinned uh, Timothy as kind of being in the best actor race for Call Me By Your Name. So seeing him in Lady Bird was like, oh, he's playing the supporting role. He's like, you know, he's just he's kind of the it boy of the moment. I believe at the time um, he is credited as being part of the movement that ushered in uh, the twink generation, if you will. Um, I think there are generations of twink erasure by saying that. Well, oh, of, of course, <laughs> yeah, Leonardo are. DiCaprio for a start. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, but well, we all know. I how- think I think what Timothy Chalamet ushered in is the art throb as opposed to the heart throb. Oh, yeah. Very true. That's a great yeah. phrase. Yeah, because yeah. it's a bit emo, but also you know, without Timothy cool. Chalamet, we don't get something like Love Victor, where everyone in that show yeah. is like kicking their grandmother out the way in order to be declared, "I am an art throb. I'm straight, but I'm an ally." How many yeah. hours of podcast would we need to draw the line from Timothy Chalamet to Love Victor? I'm gonna go out on a limb and say like two and a half. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've just done it in thirty seconds. Okay. Well, isn't Sophia and Stevens have a song in Love Simon as well? So that's it. Two steps done. Did he? I'm sure he did. Have I made that up? I know. I know that Jack Antonoff worked on the soundtrack, which you know, Jack Antonoff is is Sufjan Stevens for straighter people, I would say. But um... <laughs> so, Dane, if you saw Chalamet and Ladybird, why did it take you until Call Me by Your Name to become? utterly obsessed to the point where it's changed your life i well okay so if we're gonna do if we're if we're gonna do like the calendar prognostication of it i want to say i saw lady bird like october 2017 ish and then call me by your name was december so it was was about a two month if we're if we're looking at it from like a disease perspective it was about two months of gestation incubation in my soul and in my brain for kind of the full um, you know, Chalamet infection to take hold. Um, and honestly, I think it was like, kind of like what Will alluded to, like the trailers were playing for Call Me By Your Name. It had all this buzz. It was kind of like our big queer story of the Oscar season is kind of how they were pushing it. So I think it kind of had time t- to edge, if you will, which I think is a very appropriate word to use when talking about this story um, and talking about the the vibe of this movie in general is it's nothing if not like a sun-drenched edge session uh for all characters i think you can make the argument um edge session please explain edge that session. to our listeners <laughs> <laughs> so uh, when a man and a man love each other very much <laughs> um but yeah i think i think it, like like a, lady bird kind of lit the spark and then call me by your name was really this kind of just it just as much as i loved lady bird and related to so much about it there's something about call me by your name that just like hit all quadrants of my personality um there's obviously the queer aspect there's you know the 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 young coming of age 
aspect of it. I mean, I was 25 when I saw it, but like, you know, we're, we're all coming of age throughout our lives. So there's obviously something relatable about that. It is an objectively beautiful experience in the theater. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I remember, um, I'm not sure. Anytime you see it, regardless of what screen you're seeing, it, it is a gorgeous, wonderful experience. Yeah, and I, I'm actually, I'd love to hear everyone's kind of first kind of blush at seeing the film. Like, what was that experience like? Because I saw it in a very packed theater. It was the first night it was showing um, in Chicago. It was opening at the Landmark at Century City, um, which is kind of one of our local art cinemas. And it was a very, very full house. So to experience it with like that much energy in a room was so powerful and that's actually the only time i've seen it in a theater i have not seen it in a theater since so i'm curious um kind of where everyone here came to the movie what was the first experience like seeing it because i think this is a movie um kind of like what you were saying robert it works on any screen you watch it on um you know don't don't let christopher nolan know but if you're watching it on your ipod classic i'm sure it still plays just as well um (laughs) i mean i absolutely watched it at one point on a plane in australia so (laughs) but yeah i mean just like that like i think whether you're watching it in a super crowded theater or you're watching it on your own there's really like arguments to be made that like any of those could be the optimal experience because i think there's the, the the notion of like watching it in a crowded room where everyone's kind of being bowled over by these emotions but then when you're by yourself there's also that like you know the maybe maybe the end fireplace scene hits a little differently when you're alone single and you're oh, mostly yeah. through a bottle you of can wine allow yourself to like ugly cry at, which i absolutely did like i apologize i did just finish watching it about an hour ago and i'm still feeling <laughs> quite emotionally raw like for some reason it really hit me hard this time and it might have been because i watched it on my own um and i just kind of like surrendered completely to the emotions of the film and basically for the, the final half an hour i was just sobbing you know and that that final scene by the fireplace is just like the final sucker punch and it's not necessarily because it's sad you I wasn't really crying because it it was sad even though you can definitely view it that way it, it's the happy sad that gets me I think every time I watch something if it's happy sad I almost make it short circuits my brain and all I can do is cry basically there's two moments that always get me and it's when his voice breaks the first is when Oliver discovers him with the peach and his voice breaks. He goes, I don't want you to go. Yeah. But then later, after he's done the whole neck rub thing and he phones his mum and he goes, can't yeah. Up. <laughs> and then he's in the car and he's just, not okay. he's, he's trying, just trying not to He looks cry, haunted. He looks the, like the he's The trying really... of not. Yeah. Yeah, the, the trying of not wanting to cry makes him cry even more. And she just touches his shoulder, doesn't she, or his back of his neck, and it's just almost she's mm. She's driving, she's smoking a cigarette, she's, like, comforting. <laughs> it's so... Uh, I mean... I I I so have tired. I could go. She is fabulous. The the way that his parents like I that I think that's such a like an important part of the movie. Like it's mm. I when he asks his dad at the end of the 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 the, the infamous father son moment, and he's like asks, does mom know? I I that hit me so much more this time because you you can see because Michael Stuhlbarg's everything. He's so good at this, but the fact that he he just he's he that is the only moment in that whole scene, probably the only moment in the whole movie that he lies to him. 
Because when he says, does mom know? And he's like, oh, I don't think so. And you can just, and you're, and you're just like, oh, Or if mom, she doesn't know to quite the extent, maybe, I that think, he feels that way. I, I mean, he was sobbing in the car. I think, I think, I think. Oh, no, isn't he asking about both, him, his father? I think they're both incredibly aware mm. of everything. Well, I guess it could be read either way, because either, either, Shannon, either Elio's asking, does mum know about me and Oliver? Or does mum no. know that you have that's, never had that experience, even though you've been married for 20 years? That's how yeah. I've always read it. Yeah, It's nothing to do with whether she knows about Oliver, because clearly she does, because mm-hmm. she's the one who suggests, oh, yeah. hey, Elio should go with, so they can have some time alone, so our son can... Mm-hmm. She kind of asks mm-hmm. the dad for permission for Elio before Elio even thinks of it as a question yeah. to ask. Because she's sick of finding ruined peaches all over the house. <laughs> well, clearly... No, it's not even the ruined peaches. It's just the peach pits that just get thrown on the floor. Yeah. Poor Mafalda. I mean, biodegradable. Yeah. Come on. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking... that I, I also finished watching it today. I've never really considered this before, but Mafalda doesn't get a day off and the woman is in her 70s. Oh. So the sun and the peach juice is really... It's life-giving. She doesn't... Yeah, at least the you know the farmer man who brings home a giant whale <laughs> to to cook, <laughs> he gets to sit whale. down in the sun. <laughs> he gets to sit down in in the sun for like twenty minutes while those that old Jewish couple argue, then, or the old oh, Italian man. couple. But Mafalda is constantly working, and it's not, you know. She's either cooking, she's either cleaning, she's either shutting the fucking freezer because Elio or hasn't showing Oliver how to eat a fucking egg. Right. Yes. She's yeah. Like, Mafalda. Yeah. She does overstep the mark. Mafalda like, is surrounded by. Why would she leave me alone? I'm 17. <laughs> yeah. I think. I think surrounded in. by idiots. In the history of cinema, there is no unsung nanny other than Nana from the animated Peter Pan who suffers more than Mafalda, <laughs> and with with zero thanks. <laughs> I think that you're like Robert, like you said, she's closing the freezer. She's making them smoothies that they don't want. She is just, (laughs) she is, she is doing her job and she is like, I'm going to let these twinks figure out whatever the hell it is that's going on. And I'm going to stay out of like, she is literally a quiet hero. But I will also add, she hasn't yet got so far down her list of tasks that she's redecorated the house because the walls need regrouting <laughs> well she's not and a smoothing decorator out. she's a maid don't care she's mafalda mafalda's actually italian for multitask <laughs> is she is she moonlighting as a contractor i don't understand like what we're expecting of her i mean this is this is a house of celebrated antiquities so nothing's going to be touched Things have to stay as old yeah. as possible at all times. But she she allows them to be the parents that are just like the dream parents. You know, they don't have to do any of that stuff. They don't have to do the boring, mundane upkeep of a house. They get to translate they German. They get to just be... Yeah, they get to just translate German, talk about fairy tales, look at art, just be badass people, basically, because they don't have to worry about actually maintaining that house. They just get to be rich. <laughs> That's what you're trying to say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but just going back... Just going back, Will, so you read that, that essentially what is the, the finale uh, set piece. You read that father-son conversation as, um, as the father saying, I don't think your mum knows about you and Oliver. Is That's that how, you how read I read it? it this time. Because it was one of those, I, there's, a, there's a bit of, of 
Elio having a, I mean, it's like a, a moment of kind of quiver lip, like a hint of shame. And it's just one of those, like, does mom know? And it felt very, it felt very protective just because I'm going to tell you what you need to hear. I, I really love that interpretation of it, even though that's not how I've tended to interpret it when I've watched the movie, because I think that something I kind and I won't speak for everyone here, but I think something I almost take for granted watching this movie is I would I would bet that there is a that Elio's headspace in this film. He probably doesn't think his parents know what's going on. I think there's a naivete yeah. to as a 17 year old where I'm hiding everything. Right. And, and also I'm getting away with everything and nobody knows. And I think that as a viewer, we're watching it. We're seeing how his parents are acting. We know that they know. But I think if you go into Elio's interiority, I bet he thinks he's putting up this great front where he doesn't know what's going on. So I do love that interpretation of him asking if mom knows, because I think in that moment, he is probably so overwhelmed by the emotion of what his dad is saying about his dad's acceptance, about how his dad knows that like to know that his mom might also know would almost be too much. Um, So even though that's not my interpretation, I love thinking about it in that lens because no matter how you break it down, Mr. and Mrs. Perlman are both so protective of Elio and, and protective in a way that is also encouraging of, letting him be who he is it's not we're gonna shut you in the attic throw five peaches in there and you're gonna be in there for the summer and that's that's all you get (laughs) you're you're basically rapunzel in your italian villa tower no they like they let him explore they create i don't think elio thinks his mom doesn't know because he phoned her from the station and she picked him up they must have had a conversation in the car like maybe she tried to give him some reassuring words but he can't be that naive that he thinks oh, I've just been on a three-day trip with a big hunky guy from America and now I'm in floods of tears asking my mum to pick me up in the tiniest car in the world. Yeah, He can't be thinking, oh, maybe she thinks I've stubbed my toe. Maybe she thinks I'm hungover. Because <laughs> he's, he's, well, he's, also... he's wise beyond his years in certain ways. You know, he can play all that fucking music. He's a clever kid. I mean... And he's quite open, you know. He says same... he says over oh, breakfast, yeah. me and Marzia nearly had sex last night. I've just got to find the courage. Who says that? <laughs> but that's because it's kind Who of... Who says that? You say, really I, think, hey, I think he's... Batman's on, I'm going to go watch he... it. Can you imagine living in the house where you have that conversation and your dad's like, well, why didn't you? <laughs> but then the mum's not involved in the conversation. <laughs> it's entirely a male conversation. <laughs> yeah. The mum is like listening then going, what? Who? Yeah. What? He... He spends so much of the movie peacocking that that scene doesn't shock me. Like, it's funny, but like, like I, I love, I mean, I think that the scene where it's most apparent is the volleyball scene. He is strutting around chess and and Timothy Chalamet has about 80, not even, no, 80 is the wrong number. Timothy Chalamet has 8% of a chest, if that, and he is pushing (laughs) it out as far as it can go and he is peacocking yeah. so hard and i think that it is it is always in the efforts to get oliver to notice him so when he says stuff like that that sounds so i mean not only do you understand it because clearly they live in this very like bourgeois open-minded art historian house where like all feelings and all emotions are encouraged but like on top of that like he clearly just wants to show off for this big hunky man who, you know, happened upon his doorstep for the summer. 
I can I can have sex with whoever I want is what he's try kind of saying when he says that to his dad. You know, he's like, I'm I'm totally sexually active, so you know, fuck you, Oliver. Expecting some mm. kind of reaction. Yes. But if if he is peacocking and he's wanting the attention, he doesn't know how to handle it when it happens because Oliver no. rubs his well, back he's and then Elio goes off holding a peach. Yeah. He's a puppy with big paws. He doesn't he know what retreats to do. Into his, he retreats into what he knows, which is, oh, I can get a peach if I want. All I've got to do is find the courage. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Poor little fucker. Um, <laughs> one thing that I noticed this time, and on in this series we've been speaking about it a lot, is the idea of the male gaze, as in G-A-Z-E, not um, G-A-Y-S. It's It's... There's a strange tension in this film in as much as I imagine Luca Guadagnino wanted to go further, but the agents of Timothy Chalamet and Army Hammer wanted to restrict. So it seems to me that... That's not what I read. That's well, what I actually, actually, here's a that question. He actually didn't want to be explicit because he wanted it to be... He, he says he wanted it to feel more universal, like... He didn't want to get bogged down in being sexually explicit because it might exclude a bigger audience, maybe, or bigger relatability with these characters. Okay, but that could be. Bullshit. But here's my question: and James Ivory wanted yeah. full. James Ivory wanted full penetration. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. So, so I've, 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 I've been. I've I've read sections of James Ivory's recent memoir, and I sent actually the screenshots to you, Dane. Did you read it in the end? Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So so he wanted full frontal nudity. So my my question is, do you feel shortchanged? The film builds to such a place that when we finally see Elio and Oliver actually get together, the camera pans to outside the window, the tree with no apricots, and then we fade or we cut to after the deed. Should we have seen the deed? That's what the film is building to. I don't feel shortchanged at all. Because I, 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 I think we, we get the deed, we know it happens, and frankly, then we, we, we see literally the result of the deed um, made by some prop master. I don't know if it's I, probably un, not homemade. Uh, <laughs> no, they did it in the office. What are you talking about? But I feel like I don't feel shortchanged because after that moment, there is a clear dynamic shift. There's a, a, a tonal shift within their relationship, and then you see them playing more, and you see them touching more, and then mm. when you see them in the little hotel, and like, and Oliver's naked looking out the window, and then turns around and just looks at Elio, you're just like, you feel the shift so clearly. Mm. As much as I would have liked to have seen more, because I'm a pervert, <laughs> absolutely. Are you, or are you but just I, I think, interested I think, in seeing what you like? It's not perverted. Well, I mean... Tomato, tomato. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think you kind of... And I love tomatoes and tomatoes. I, <laughs> I think that it's quite nice in some ways because it's almost like he's left that moment entirely to them. It's like their secret world that they get to enjoy. And actually it would feel exploitative, maybe, if we were involved as a voyeuristic viewer. You know, they get to have that on their own. The only time it gets confusing is when Oliver says, um, was it wrong what I did or what we didn't? So that's 
that becomes ambiguous. You're like, okay, what did they do actually then? If he's suddenly really worried. <laughs> oh no, he says, um, are you going to hold it against me what we did last night? Which makes me think the reason Oliver was holding back is because he's had this experience before and it's blown up in his face. And I think I think that is the case. And I'm pretty sure that is the case in the book. Have you? Oh, you've read the book? I now years ago. I read the book right. after I I've saw the movie. Through. It's a very pretentious book. Yeah, I don't. Very pretentious. I like, don't through, find it to be. I, the movie is so I, superior. I like his other. Uh, the movie just edits down better, and the the sequel book is wretched. I have it for you, Dane. <laughs> you want to borrow it? <laughs> Enjoy. Um, that. Well, you keep you you his, keep holding think, on to that, and I will let you know when I find the desire to want to read it. <laughs> I'll call you by my name when I want to read it. <laughs> um, and you'll I, find me. <laughs> to go to go back briefly to your question, Robert, I think that if we're thinking about it contextually, I go immediately to this kind of reality that we're still in in 2022, where movies like Lightyear are courting controversy because of a same sex kiss. And not to say, like, you know, Call Me By Your Name needs to be compared to Disney's quote unquote exclusively gay mo- gay moments that they've been teasing since, you know, Beauty and the Beast. When we think about it like that, this movie is so unambiguously homoerotic and queer that, like, not seeing full frontal nudity, not seeing penetration doesn't bother me because there's just nothing chaste about this movie. It is it is sweaty. It is sensual. It is sexual. I mean, not only do you see it them. Yeah. It, yeah. It's it, it, it's buzzing with eroticism, queer or not. I think that. um I think, you know, seeing Elio grab Oliver's crotch unambiguously, um, even though we don't see the actual deed between them, the first shot after coming back or the first shot after panning out to the trees, their legs are intertwined. You see, like, the mountains of their body entangled in each other. Like, I just I don't feel shortchanged by anything. I I understand like the. I, and I, and I, if anything, I empathize most with James Ivory because, you know, at one point it was his understanding that he was going to co-direct this movie with Luca Guadagnino. So maybe his vision was being compromised. So I feel bad for him on like an artistic level. But when the final product. He has an Oscar. He'll be. Exactly. Like, I, you know, I, <laughs> I, I don't want to tell him his feelings don't matter because they do. However, the final product is incredible and. um yeah, I just there's no part of me that feels like we're missing out on anything. Yes, on a voyeuristic level, like do we want to see Call Me by Your Name uncut, uncensored and unreleased, of course, but like as a piece of art, there's nothing wrong with what we see on screen. They are American both of them, so they're probably cut. <laughs> oh, for sure. Well, which which that would which, Oh yeah, and Jewish, that, yeah. That, <laughs> Jews yeah. of discretion. Um <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Until until they're very bold with their with their their stars of David. Yeah. So the the thought of frontal nudity makes me think. So I saw a play here in town this week, and it's set in a high school. And you see essentially every one of the characters that is playing a minor, fully nude. And I it I still am thinking about it because it's like, is it appropriate to have a play? Where you see actors who are of age, but they're playing characters who are minors. How are you supposed to feel about that? And it creates a bit of a moral question, especially when it is you're seeing them in a sexualized sense. 
So would it be crossing some weird ethical lines about seeing Elio naked as a 17-year-old, even though Timothy wasn't 17 at the time? No. Right, so this ties into something that I have, have an issue with, and it's usually when they take actual children and make them do semi-sexual things. So I really dislike the ending of Stranger Things 2 when they're at the prom and they're all kissing. I find that very, very strange. But... I don't have a problem, seemingly, with uh, the age gap or the perceived um, minor aspect of Elio's age. I mean, in Amer- in Italy, what was the age of consent back then? I want to say it's 16, but I, I don't know. I, I think because in this country, the age of consent is 16. So my mind is like, well, he's not a minor what's the age of consent in america there's certain like what do they call them like sweetheart laws that like once once someone is like 18 but then like their girlfriend is still six like there's and it's it also varies state by state um but i i i do want to say it actually it's actually i don't know if the same kind of controversy or conversation floated over in England, but there was kind of a little bit of a, a controversy when Licorice Pizza came out last year about the age gap stuff. And it actually reminded me, it reminded me of Call Me By Your Name because it, it seemed as if like that's that conversation was like buzzing under the surface of like a critique people kind of pulled if they didn't like the movie, but then a lot of people didn't really seem to find issue with it. Um, and it made me think like, is there just this like when the art is so good do we not worry about the 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 ramifications of of an age gap? Is that like a thing that happens? I mean, the older I get watching this movie, the age gap doesn't play into my mind at all. Because even objectively, like it is clear that Oliver is older than Elio. He's definitely older than Elio. Army looks older than than Timothy, but they don't look. It's not this like may november thing like it's they still seem very close in age Mm. it doesn't it's not jarring to me in the slightest it's probably because a timothy chalamet and is almost beyond his years and therefore elio the character is beyond his years if if let's say elio was sitting there licking the lollipop playing with his train set that would be a little bit mysterious skin right? yeah. yeah yeah there's not a there's not a hint of grooming yeah and it's like who is who is sort of who's seducing who and you know there's lots of touching and glances and all of that in the like first 45 minutes they are really toying with each other it's not just oliver sort of drooling over elio and elio being like shy little timid field mouse you know he gives as good as he gets basically and that first 45 minutes of them doing that is is it's hot. <laughs> yeah it's so hot i mean that almost that goes it's, back yeah, to it's almost summer. why it's very hot it's not it's summer 1983 <laughs> no very hot everyone's half naked all the time <laughs> half naked Even or in a very roomy <laughs> short sh- very very short shorts I mean, I think that's part of the reason why the movie doesn't feel perverted at all is because there's constantly a power dynamic. And when I say power dynamic, I don't mean an uneven one. They are constantly toying back and forth between who has control. I mean, Mm. one of the most like emotionally effective and in a way it's I, I wouldn't call it sad. It's just it's just fascinating when when they get back from swimming after the first night where they finally consummate their relationship and 
you see Oliver realize he has lost his power over Elio, at least the, yeah. to the extent that he had it. So what does he do? He tells Elio to take his shorts off. He blows him for 30 seconds, not even, and then slams the door on him to remind him that, you know, n not even that he's in charge, but that, you know, he 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 has the upper hand on Elio from a experience oh, I, I perspective. I saw that more as Oliver being worried that he had taken advantage of Elio and Elio had done something he didn't want to. And so when he's like, oh, you're hard again, look at that. It was more like, oh, no, okay, you wanted this as much as I did. It, we're fine. Let's move on. Yeah, I, that is definitely a, oh, this is not a one-time yeah, thing. Yeah, I read that as being, as being tied into the, the potential that this has happened to Oliver before and he's been burnt. This is, for me, this is Oliver sort of, retesting the waters very quickly and realizing yeah. that oh no this is going to be a very different experience yeah. i'm not going to get in trouble this time this is no longer the oliver at the the war memorial saying we yeah. can't talk about that mm -hmm. oh yeah yeah complete turn we need to be good we haven't done anything to be ashamed of yet and that's good that's a good mm -hmm. thing that's my army hammer and now we have <laughs> and that's also yeah. a good Well, I'm glad you brought up the war memorial scene because I wanted there's something that like really struck me on this watch that I've only kind of like flirted with on other watches is so you we have the war memorial scene as it plays out. It's the one it's the one shot and you know, it's it's Oliver saying like we can't do this, we can't do this, we can't do this. But later um I believe it's during the sequence when they're in um when Oliver is about to leave um, they cut to this very like um, overexposed shot where it's they're clearly in front of the the, the it's Elio's, Elio's he's dreaming dream. exactly yeah, dream. um, and he you know Oliver is you know caressing him um, and there's a lot of shots like that throughout the movie there's the shot where um, Elio is waiting for Oliver to come home uh, and he doesn't come back and the kind of the, the blues fade in and out of the screen and the movie enters this very like. Mm -hmm. I feel like the whole movie in a way is dreamlike, but it gets very explicitly dreamlike. There's even parts in that uh, where the screen kind of fades in and out of blue where you kind of see like film kind of come in and out of frame and yeah. you're, you're reminded that you're watching yeah. a movie. And also it goes in and, and out of focus as well. It's the visions well. of Gideon section. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah. And it, it, what really hit me on this watch, there's a scene first. I, I love this scene in general. It's so funny. It's the scene where the two elderly Italian uh, oh. the, the, the elderly Italian couple is like, are, are, oh my they're God, so, funny. so funny. It's, it, it works perfectly as just like a piece of comedy. But there's a yeah. line that one of them says, they say cinema is a mirror of reality and it is a filter. And that is so much for me, the thesis of what this movie is, is it is mm -hmm. a memory. It is a feeling um, to use a word that I've used like 80 times describing this movie. It's a vibe. <laughs> um, it's, it, it I've, I've never kind of like, I feel like when movies get meta, they get super like, yeah, this is a movie and you're watching it and I'm going to narrate all of the things that like, you know, if, if a protagonist makes a decision, um, you know, in, in like a, in a horror movie and then if it's getting meta, they're like, oh, like you can't go down there. Like when you go down there in the movies, you get killed. Like this movie manages I'll to be right back. Exactly. This movie manages to <laughs> comment on the fact that it's a film and it's a memory and it's a it's it is cinema acting you know to draw exactly from the line as a mirror of reality right. without getting cheeky or um 
you know, it it, it doesn't break it doesn't break the reality. It's not, and even, it's not cynical, you know. It, it's embracing that rather than being rather than commenting on it in overtly stylistically. But the whole thing's a memory, right? Even the book is from Elio's perspective, looking back ten or fifteen, twenty years yeah, later. Yeah, because Sufjan Stephen yeah. was offered the chance to narrate the film. There was originally narration for the whole film, and then. Guadagnino was like, well, there's no point having narration because it will steal the agency of the story. You know, it just needs to play out. Who was going to do the narration? Well, Sufjan Stephen was offered the opportunity to do the narration Mm -hmm. as like an older version of Elio. And he was like, no, I just want to do the songs. (laughs) So he did the songs. And they are amazing. Those three songs. Oh, my God. Oh, they're incredible. I I actually heard it was going to be narrated by Nefalda. And it was going to be like a DVD oh, commentary where she was like, and this is the bit where he wouldn't shut the freezer. And afterwards, I found many pips on floor. Very, many, many pips. That's Disgusting. that's on the 4K edition. <laughs> oh, is that on the 4K? Is that the direct? Is that the James Ivory cut? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. That's the only that's the only commentary I want. What, James Ivory? Well, sure. I mean, but I would, I would love a James, James Ivory, Ivory and Mafalda in the same room together. They would be equally as annoyed at the same things. <laughs> yeah. Um, just have interest. What certificate is this over in the States? It's R. Is that, what does that translate to? So That's the is highest that the before... most harsh you can get? Yeah, before NC-17. It is, it is, it is, yeah, parental guidance uh, for anyone over, anyone under the age of 17. Right. So, what's a is anything above R? That would be NC-17. Which is like where no one. NC-17 must be our... Mm-hmm. Okay, so NC seventeen must be our eighteen. Yeah, Joshua pointed out earlier in this country it's a fifteen, but I hadn't noticed against the the fifteen certificate on the DVD box or the Blu-ray box it says strong sex, mm. and both Joshua and I think it's like what are you talking no, about? This it, could there's be a not 12. strong. There's not strong. This sex could be a PG thirteen. It yeah, should be a twelve A, which I is, guess is like your PG thirteen. It has a strong sexual energy. Uh, but... There's nothing really explicit. The most explicit part is when the girl takes off her top. That's pretty much it, I think. Yeah, I yeah. would that would um, that be because you actually see semen i mean we were alluding to it earlier but like if we're if we're if we're gonna be as that it might be you do see them both like wipe their chests off yeah it looks more like sweat than anything else yeah really gloopy white sweat (laughs) it's it's, they're in italy sun cream it's it's only it's only it's only come if you're looking for come i have a question and we always are can someone explain to me what what is going on with the whole call me by your name thing like why does oliver say to elio call me by your name and I'll call you by mine. Like what is, what is that? It's an intertwined thing. They're almost the, yeah. they are, they are each other's yin to the yang. They are the yep. opposite side of the same coin. They are, mm-hmm. you know, they are soulmates. They have finally found each other. They are lobsters. <laughs> call I me love that. <laughs> I love that interpretation. Dane, do you call, do you call Casey Dane? And does Casey call you Casey? No, we we have not we have not oh. ventured into that uh, that strict of role play. Uh, my obsession with "Call Me by Your Name" doesn't extend that far. Surprisingly, I'm seeing a lot of surprised looks on the screen Will. right now. I know this is a this is a, this is an audio <laughs> format, but I'm just going to call out that everyone looks mildly surprised. So, um, just going to call that out really quickly. Uh, Will, what do you call your cat, and what does your cat call you? Um, I don't have sex with my cat. <laughs> 
Well, I didn't. I wasn't suggesting that. <laughs> Why did your I mean, mind go there? Because <laughs> yeah. that's yeah. what we're talking about here. You don't have sex with your cat, <laughs> but your cat has sex with you. No, she just likes to watch. Yeah. Oh, God. oh, she's a cock. <laughs> she sits in the corner. And just, oh, like the Blair Witch that. faces the corner. Oh, but she's not, she's not staring against the wall. She's facing in. <laughs> um, yeah, they are completely intertwined and i guess that is a it's a very poetic way of of sort of under it's very self-aware because it's almost immediate isn't it it's even Mm. before they've you know wiped the sweat on oliver's shirt oliver is saying and they're upside down in the frame so you know it's almost like they are completely they are completely flipped they are they have switched places you know the line has been crossed i mean and you i mean and it is it is difficult to see who is who, physically. Yeah, that is. It is mm-hmm. when they're so, when they're intertwined. Yeah, it's difficult the, to know with, whose leg is how who. they're twisted. So yeah. so much of and the film, shadowy. so much of the film is the physicality difference between the two of them. And you know, uh, to 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 touch on it briefly, I will say. What, regardless of where you stand on the controversy of Army Hammer, I think it's beside the point because he exists in this movie purely to be climbed like a tree. Um, yeah, his I I well, was everyone his performance... falls over their feet, falls over him. You know, everyone's obsessed with him in this film. Right, they exactly. Call they, like the they call him the American. Yeah, yeah. And I I think that that is the that blonde Americans are hot. <laughs> Thank you, Will. I appreciate that very much. Um, <laughs> I was a blonde American at some point. Um, you've just you've just raised the idea, Dane. Did you just put your Star of David in your mouth? Did I just? I caught. He's you been off. doing it this whole time. You haven't noticed it, well. No, there's no discretion. I'm not a Jew of it. discretion. <laughs> You're a Jew of indiscretion. <laughs> yeah, I am very much so. <laughs> and some. That's my autobiography, actually. <laughs> From Borenwood to Hollywood, a Jew of indiscretion. That is the first time where their physicality doesn't matter. They're on the same level. They're on the same page as far as the power dynamic. Yeah. And also, I think that when they say, call me by your name and call me by yours, there is this recognition in the other where they they finally see, I don't know if it's an equal necessarily, but it's someone who understands them and it's somebody who has the same feelings that they have. And, you know, if we're kind of, so much of this movie does such great work to like take the queer story and the queer romance out of the time frame, you know, there's no, there's no like weird. Oh well, that's not how it would have been in the '80s because that's not how attitudes were. Because a, we've already talked about how you know cinema is a mirror of reality. It doesn't have to, you know, abide by the laws of culture and society and time. Not only that, we also have Mr. and Mrs. Perlman creating this environment where their son can be who he is and explore who he is without consequence. So there's all of those. I mean, it's- this microcosm. Right. So there's all those factors playing into it. It, it, it. Tying into that, it also helps that, A, it's not set in London in the 1980s. It's not set in New York or LA or San Francisco. And it's not in the late 80s when the book is set. It's actually in the early 80s. So the, the anti-gay sentiment that happened as a backlash to the AIDS crisis probably hasn't hit at all, really, and definitely hasn't hit in the middle of, you know, rural Italy in a very relaxed, sexually aware country. Actually, the parent watching the film this time, the parents really jumped out 
I don't know why, but I just found them so fascinating because they they clearly adore each other. They love each other. They clearly have a physical relationship as well as sort of an emotional and an intellectual relationship. It just so happens that the father, you know, ha is perhaps bisexual and she's clearly knows this or maybe she doesn't. But, you know, maybe on a certain level she does. But that kind of made me wonder if the reason that the father is so... Um, sort of direct with with elio at the end is because essentially he is saying i am oliver you know i don't turn out like me and oliver you know oliver goes off and gets married um it's it's sort of like it's debatable if he'll end up having quite so lovely and open a relationship with his wife i very much doubt he will based on all the evidence so yeah his father is kind of saying I am Oliver, I understand Oliver completely, so don't be like us. Which is an amazing gift to to like a young man. It does make a lot of sense. And it's interesting because every so often in the film, we do meet a new adult couple. We've got Sonny and Cher. Yeah. <laughs> do you hate them because they're gay or because they're ridiculous? <laughs> they're gay or because they're ridiculous, yeah. An eternal question. But that's a really nice moment because... <laughs> yeah. Um, that's what I ask myself when I look in the mirror. <laughs> Do I hate myself because I'm gay or because I'm And the answer is yes. I need that on a t-shirt. It's a nice moment between Elio and his dad because his dad's trying to be stern, but then they have a giggle over that. So they yeah. obviously have that sort of relationship. But there's also another couple, the arguing, henpecked, battle-axe, old Italian couple. So we've got three versions of what Elio and yeah. or Oliver's future could be. And it doesn't seem to be going in any of those directions. They're not going to be the au queer couple wearing pastel suits in roasting heat, turning up in a classic car. They're not going to be the arguing couple. And they're not going to be the Perlmans, even though that seems to be the most desirable version of what couples could be. Because when you start scratching away at the surface, you realise, well, the dad's not 100% happy and he's never going to be, you know, he's, he, in the same way that Elio says, all I need to do is reach out and grab the courage. Mm. Perlman is probably never going to reach out, grab that courage and explore that side of him, even though his wife probably would be quite open minded if he wanted to go off with. Fishy farm. Oh, she man. speaks three languages. Maybe she's she, she's completely <laughs> Yeah. Maybe she's got maybe she's got eyes on Mafalda. That's why she keeps around chained, <laughs> literally chained to the kitchen. I mean, you know Mafalda knows how to use her <laughs> hands. She does. I saw the way she closed that fridge. She's rolling all that pasta. She knows what she's doing. <laughs> she's got strong wrists, that woman has. Very strong wrists. Um, Dane, you brought it up, Army Hammer. Now, I'm of the mindset that i don't like trial by media i'm very much of the mindset of someone is innocent until proven guilty by a court of law so i have very died in the wall uh considerations when i think well hang on i know army hammer is quote-unquote cancelled and i hate cancel culture and he seems to be not getting employed but i know that you probably think a little bit different so this question for everyone did the issues surrounding Army Hammer at the moment, does that hinder your enjoyment of the film in any way? It didn't hinder it for me. Um, and I, I will say that 
I feel very I, I, I totally hear you, Robert, and I agree that, um, you know, obviously this whole notion of cancel culture is so murky and complicated. And I would hate to bog down the fun of a beautiful, you know, queer 21st century podcast topic by delving too far into it. Um, but that all being said, I, I do agree. I, I think at the end of the day, what I do know is that I believe in separating the art from the artist to whatever degree an individual is comfortable. Um, because I have many cases where I will, I will have trouble watching something because of someone who's in it. But then at the same, um, you know, like a rainy day in New York. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, we don't even have time to get into the Woody Allen of it all. There's multiple but, issues with that film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think that it really is like a case by case basis. And I don't think there is a, a black and white yes or no answer to any of it. I will say in the case of Call Me By Your Name, I spent no part of the film being uncomfortable by Army Hammer's presence. A, because like I said, I think he exists to be climbed like a tree and to be ogled at. And I think that <laughs> whatever your opinion on him, you cannot deny that he is he he is supposed to be the physical embodiment of the voluptuous Venus that they bring up from the bottom of the ocean. He is there to be a physical specimen. I think on top of all of that, he gives a very beautiful, nuanced performance that I think when you look at his other work, he's a little bit more hit or miss. So I think you kind of have to credit that to Luca Guadagnino's direction. Um, so to give a really straightforward answer to your question, Robert, uh, and to let other people chime in, it doesn't bother me. But at the same time, if someone were to say to me, the army hammer stuff really bothers me. It prevents me from thoroughly watching or enjoying this movie. I wouldn't hold it against them because everyone comes to every film with their own individual experiences. And while it does, while it doesn't bother me, I wouldn't begrudge anyone to who it did bother them. I would simply say, I hope that you could still enjoy the movie for what it is and, you know, fi find whatever um, enjoyment in it that you can. Well, it didn't hinder me at all, and and I think, I think, part of the whole army hammerness within the culture is there are the, the the accusations of some inappropriate behavior and grooming. I think a lot of the cultural backlash is is centered in a, a fair amount of kink shame that is just like oh he just likes saying things and people are taking that very literally. So I, I disregard a lot of that. In relation to the movie, especially with the watch that I did this week, I almost pulled this movie, and this is a tribute to the way it's filmed, the way it's directed, the way it's acted. I can almost convince myself that this is a movie from the 80s. Like, this is not a movie of now. I can, I, I can, I, in many ways, view this movie without thinking about these actors in any other capacity. Um, because there's such a timeless nature to it that the nowness of any of the actors has nothing to do with what I'm seeing. I'm just I'm just here in this story, luxuriating in this lush wonderland and having feelings. Yeah. I kind of feel the same way as both Will and Dane, where I get if someone wouldn't want to watch the film because they find Army Hammer problematic and I wouldn't have an issue with that. But I also do think that if you if you do feel comfortable watching it, it, it does have a, the ability to pull you under and forget about, you know, everything that has gone on in the press. And actually, I didn't 
read up on any of the stuff about Army Hammer either before or after watching or preparing for the podcast because I just thought it's slightly not what we're here to talk about and even if people are aware of that stuff it does weirdly kind of add something to the film a little bit you know like he because he plays such a, a an interesting character where you could see him as the villain by the end of the film you you, cho- you could choose to either see him as a villain or just sort of like a complex human being um who's made some questionable choices so i think if anything to be generous it slightly maybe adds something um but i think you probably can take it just as a fantastic performance as well how do you feel rob i have no problem watching anything with army hammer in because of him i have problems with some of the movies because he's done a lot of shit and it's weird he he like he kind of his call me by your name his breakout was the social network and then weirdly he sort of flayed around not really finding his lane until this film um but yeah but you know separating the art from the artist it's easy in some respects so i've no problem watching a woody allen film because again i i believe innocent until proven guilty sometimes i do realize halfway through a roman polanski movie i'm thinking oh hang on was this before after the child rape hmm but then and not much was before to to be clear <laughs> um well no end of the 70s so he'd been making films since the 50s late 50s so there was a big handful um rosemary's then, baby in the I'm clear really very baby in, in the what <laughs> well i was saying he made rosemary's baby before everything so rosemary's baby in the clear oh, i don't yes. know if rosemary's baby itself Rosemary is in the baby. clear because it is technically the spawn of the devil but the film itself pre pre-problematic yes pre pre problem yes but things where mike tyson is given a free pass in movies i find very bizarre because he's a woman beater and convicted rapist and i remember when i remember when it was either it was either hangover two or three whichever one was in bangkok the guy that does a cameo as the tattoo artist that they have to loop back to that was originally going to be mel gibson but the cast kicked off and said no we don't want him he's very problematic because of the things he said but then at the end of the film it's almost like mike tyson is given a hero's welcome because why he's mike tyson the guy's a, a a violent thug who raped a woman has never fully apologized and never apologized at all just did the whole usual i found god in prison Oh wow! What was he in there for? But his but his voice is fun, so <laughs> we want we want that in a movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I the think the voice of a muppet. The selective, the selective, cancelled versus not cancelled. Who's forgiven? Who's not forgiven? Like it's so it's so subjective, and there's no consistency to it. Which is why I think the whole the whole notion of cancel culture doesn't hold water because clearly people pick and choose who they do and don't want to continue supporting. Um, to go back to, I, I, and I, again, I think with the call me of your name, call me by your name of it all, nothing that army, if kind of to go back to your point, Josh, I, I love that interpretation of like, if you see him as the villain, then maybe that adds to what you're watching. I think that if the movie were less fine tuned and we were watching Army's character groom Timothy, we would feel, we would potentially feel differently about watching it because real life is bleeding into art. 
Um, I agree with you, Robert. There are a lot of Woody Allen films that I still enjoy watching. However, the ones where his character is clearly dating a minor, I get a little cringy at just because the reality is bleeding into the art. Which, again, I'm not saying that you should, you know, people can enjoy Manhattan. It, there's no, I don't, I don't look down on you for enjoying or wanting to watch the movie. For me, it's, it is, a, it is a fine piece of Merrill's filmography. Absolutely. But it is, the main topic of the movie is hard to exactly. watch. Exactly. So I think I haven't that, actually seen Manhattan. I know that I've started it. I don't know if I ever finished it. I've, I've seen it <laughs> like a, a long time ago. Um, time is ticking on. So there's a few things I just want to touch upon. What do we all think of Luca Guadagnino's style here? How he has shot the film, how the scenes are constructed. I know technically, um, just to be a bit geeky, it was shot on a 35mm lens, which is kind of like the human eye, even though human eye is probably about 42, 43. Um, so anywhere between 35 and 50 millimeter in terms of focal length is going to make it seem a little bit documentary, but it's got that warm, like luxurious, leisurely feel of a merchant ivory. And it really hit home this time watching how the camera just stays or it moves ever so slightly, but the scenes are played out in wide and it's quite long takes, just letting the actors play. And I wonder if it lends itself to that sort of leisurely late summer evening feel where everything's a bit, you know, you're a bit lethargic because you've been out in the sun all day and, every, and, you know, you can't really open your eyes too much because the sun is so glaring. It really is a... Uh, it's a Pim's O'Clock film, isn't it? Yeah. And like beyond the, the visuals, I saw some interviews with the cast where they talked about actually working with that camera, which is essentially like, I think it was like a, a handheld or like it's actually quite a small camera. And they kind of just forgot it was there a lot of the time. You know, there was one camera operator or whatever, and it would move around and they actually would barely even notice that it was actually a camera. And I think that really does translate to the film because it does feel so naturalistic there's it's so authentic and they just do look like they're living this experience and i think it is a lot to do with that choice to use that camera do you think also helps that shot on location not in the sound studio not in la and having to pretend it's italy they are literally in i think like luca guadagnino's hometown it's it's like a a complete immersive experience for them yeah, nothing about it is stagey. Nothing about it feels methodically plotted out, which, you know, you could argue it's either so well done that we don't notice that it's staged or he just kind of threw the actors into the scene and said, go. And I think that the movie creates, Robert, you put it so well, there's just this like sun-drenched like laziness to it. And I don't mean lazy in, you know, the, the, the sense that it sounds, I mean, I mean, lazy in the sense that it's languid, it moves, it's, you know, there's the whole line about, you know, the river flowing. It doesn't mean that some things only stay the same by changing. There's this, there's this, like, there's this thread to all of it that feels like, there's no other way it could have happened. There's no there's no part of you that watches this movie and thinks, oh, well, maybe this should have happened or maybe they should have done this differently. It all seems predestined and preordained. Like this, almost like, Will, I loved what you were saying about how this movie just like existed from the 80s. And because like, there's just nothing about it that feels like it's from a certain time or from a certain um, 
you know, and it's interesting when you think about Luca Guadagnino as a filmmaker because he is a really interesting filmmaker. Um, you know, Suspiria, which comes out the year after this, is completely different than this, a completely different vibe, an equally amazing movie. But, you know, I don't think you would watch those movies and necessarily think they came from the same director. So when you watch Call Me By Your Name, it doesn't have a, oh, this feels like this is this era of Martin Scorsese's filmography, or this has the the dollhouse effect of a Wes Anderson film, or even a, I think like a, a more apt comparison is probably like Sofia Coppola. Cause she does a lot of like oh, yeah. kind of sun drenched, um, you know, her whole like signature shot of like the sun, like rippling through the trees. This doesn't feel part of a filmmaker's filmography. It just feels, it feels so singular. It feels, so, it, I don't think there's anything else like it. Um, which on this watch, I was thinking about that a lot and thinking, wow, it really speaks to Luca's strength as a director because whether or not it was this methodically thought out or he just gathered the most talented people and said, we're going to turn the camera on and you're going to go, whatever way he he brought all of it together, it works like clockwork. It's insane. I think, I think, it, is, I think it is distinctly non-stylized, which I think is, I mean, that, that goes with, the leisure of it all i mean you're you're in a scene and you're not there's nothing jarring you're just you're able to your eyes know where to go i mean i think there is a fair amount of staging just from the nature of filmmaker and filmmaking and, and framing and composition but you don't feel forced everything is natural everything is easy mm. um which i think if and the fact that we do kind of sit in scenes so often and there's so really little camera movement when we have certain scenes, like when they're in the bar and we go from kind of below Elio and then we pan over to him watching Oliver at the table, you're like, Oh, that's interesting because you, we are so used to kind of just being present. So we don't, we don't, we're never really seeing anything from anyone's point of view. We're just seeing things. We're seeing things from our point of view. We're we're clearly just invited to be here. And I think to go off of that, this film is so unstructured. There's no classic conflict. Like the, like I was thinking about this when we were talking about how how lovely all of the characters are and how how they all interact is so lovely. There's no like conflict between people. There's all, there's no like there, there's push and pull, but it's not in that like typical act one act two act three like save the cat screenplay structure like all the conflict is internal and it's about worrying about how people interpret you and whether they you know whether oliver likes him or not is like the complete arc of elio's emotional journey in this film other than of course like the act of self-discovery and things like that so i think so much of the unstructured nature comes from james ivory's script where you know there's not this like um you know, it's not uh, it's not as much as I love them. There's no like Merchant Ivory, you know, like Howard's End or, you know, th- th- those are just much more traditionally structured films in, um, you know, they're things about class and there's things about conflict and inheritance and blah, blah, blah. And this is so much more just um, people have feelings. Are they going to act on those <laughs> feelings or not? Like what could be more natural than that? Well, isn't I think that the two the arc in the film it's like it's the parallel it's elio's parallel love stories i think it's you see the the parallels between his 
love story with his friend slash inverted commas girlfriend and how that develops sort of emotionally and physically and then it's sort of like mirrored in the way his relationship develops with um oliver and you kind of see the difference like when he's he's so playful and sort of like silly and also sexual with is it marina or maritia maritia yeah and yet when he's with oliver you can tell he really cares because he's like oh i'm nervous and his body language completely changes yeah so i think it's that twin track of physical like emotional physical development that he goes through that is actually the the structure of the film we're watching him become a man (laughs) hair on his chest and the shaving yeah it's definitely there's definitely a um a healthy balance between the film having like a a hard structure and just being a, a character observation piece and i think it it balances it reasonably well you don't feel like it's it's flailing around looking for a direction there's definitely a a direction and it's following the characters um to wrap up i just want to do a round table i want to know one moment from the film that just stuck out this time it could be big it could be small it could be anything uh will do you want to go first i think in the hotel um i think the just kind of really focusing in when we see oliver just looking at elio and elio's asleep just one of those like oh this is it's one it's one of those moments that it hurt a little bit more because you're like oh this is gonna end and you can see on his face oh, this, this is, is love this is... that's the moment i think that he's like fuck i love him yeah he's he, he's like oh this is the best thing that's ever <laughs> happened to me and i'm getting on a train hmm. in an in hours away and it's like oh and elio's and then you get to elio's dream and he's this oversaturated uh reverse technicolor going through all these memories and just like oh no like this is just this sad (laughs) this sad climax moment that they're like oh this This is is only sad as she says in avatar yeah Yeah, that 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 really stood out to me joshua your moment this watch was very much about the parents that really sort of shone through for me this watch and I read a quote where Guadagnino said that the film to him is an homage to the fathers of his life, his own father and his cinematic ones, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, so yeah, it really, the parents really stood out. And I think even though I'd obviously seen it before, just something about that father scene when he talks so plainly and sort of vulnerably with his son, there was just something about that this time that, you know actually made me sob it was so bizarre like I'm just that's not the kind of person I generally am but just something about it is that happy sad thing I guess and like the selflessness of his he's giving his son such a gift by telling him this that Elio it makes the the final scene with Elio by the fight that more impactful because you can see in Elio's face that he is actually attempting to practice what his father has just taught him you know you can see the joy you can see him remembering everything that's happened and you can see the sadness and the joy and it comes and goes um so yeah it's definitely it was the parents and the father for me this time well i think we all wish that we had that that talk to (laughs) us when we were 17 hell yeah how different our lives would be 
It's like the anti-shame talk. <laughs> uh, Dane McDonald. Oh, it's so hard not to like cherry pick moments that have stuck out to me on so many rewatches and have obviously stuck out to me on this rewatch. So I won't, I won't be a broken record and repeat myself. Um, one that really stood out to me on this watch is actually right before the final scene in the fireplace where um, it hard cuts after after the beautiful speech that Michael Subar gives and it goes right to winter and it's obviously Hanukkah and um, you see Elio come into the house and not only is it so different than we've ever seen him because all of a sudden it's winter and he's not wearing his, you know, his cut off sleeveless shirts and his swim trunks and things like that. We see him in like winter garb for the first time. And he's wearing this like big black coat and he's got this like beret type hat on. And he's got that obviously instantly iconic patterned white shirt with this little like black turtleneck type thing underneath it. What struck me was this is like, it was like the first time we see Elio come into his queerness, which is an interesting thing to think when you've just watched an entire movie of him, you know, fondle and climb Army Hammer. Um, <laughs> but it, but it, it, it struck me because right, especially coming right after that speech, you really, you really understand that Elio has has begun to do the work to accept who he is and to love himself. Um, which I think obviously could tie back into the whole call me by your name of it all discussion of what that line means, but I digress there. Um, but I, yeah, I just, I was so struck by how it was like seeing a new character. It was like seeing this new person and obviously knowing what's about to happen. You're like already emotional thinking about the news he's about to receive and which isn't even another kind of step in, in his emotional journey and, and growing up and realizing that, you know, things end and they only have meaning because they end. So yeah, just, it's so simple, but just watching Timothy come in the front door wearing that outfit, I was just realizing, oh, I'm seeing someone who is who is growing up and who has now had this experience that has made him into um, a new version of himself. Um, so mine is actually in the telephone call at the end when Oliver phones to uh, tell the Pearlmans and Elio that he's engaged. Elio almost has to like, he goes a bit wide-eyed as he forces himself to almost say like, congratulations, like, well done. And it struck me that we've all had a moment like that where someone has told us something that is great for them. Naturally, we think that's shit for me. And it's always to do with relationships. And you almost have to like pretend and play a little bit of a, a role, put a front on because you don't want the other person to know that you are dying inside. But yet you find a way to put that front so they they come away from the conversation thinking that you're perfectly fine mm. and i found that moment very very truthful and that's the skill of timothy chalamet because anyone anyone else it would have just been a a little bit of a forced moment but mm. that's a chalamet he just finds the truth in these these little moments and you just think you're 20 what are you 19 when he shot that film right how the fuck do you understand the nuance of that how have you got that experience at age 19 i'm 39 and i'm only just realizing that. <laughs> i love in that sequence i think the moment you're talking about rob is when um i think the line that he says is that's wonderful news and he like rolls his eyes like i think he goes wide eyed like 
he goes wide-eyed he and goes rolls wide-eyed, his eyes. Like forcing it out. Oh, yeah, it's so It's not good. a roll, because it's definitely like a, like a shocking himself into, I need to put a front up here. Otherwise, you know. But he puts, he, he puts just enough salt on that. it that you know he's like, he's a little pissed. And I, I think there's even part mm. of him that like is letting him know that while kind of saying the congrats. It's, yeah, like you said, he's so he's so talented. And the fact that he was able to convey all 19 of those emotions in one delivery at the age that he was is like stupid. But, you know, that's why I made a whole podcast about him. That was Call Me By Your Name, directed by Luca Guadagnino. And that's it for the current series, celebrating 21st century queer cinema. We're back later in the year. In the meantime, check out our past episodes and be sure to subscribe. And we're on Twitter at TornsDovesPod. Come give us a tweet. And guys, where can we find your uh, socials? Uh, I am on the Dane McDonald on all socials as in Twitter and Instagram. So you can follow me there. Uh, Will and I have a show together called Chasing Chalamet. And uh, you can follow Chasing Chalamet online as well. Uh, we are Chasing Chalamet uh, on Instagram and we are Chalamet Chasing on Twitter. That's not confusing. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Will Bybee, W-I-L-L-B-I-B-Y. <laughs> Sounds like a commercial <laughs> on American TV. <laughs> <laughs> Side effects, you apply. And you can follow me on Saturdays at 9pm, 8 central. Ask your doctor about Will Bybee. <laughs> I mean, you probably should. Yes. Um, Seek medical attention. We are off to have a peachy time. Until next time, I remain Robert Gershenson. I'm Josh Winning. I'm Will Bybee. I'm Dane McDonald. Later. Oh.